I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So, sorry, before we start, do you mind, I did a very brief intro, um, but do you mind giving a quick elevator pitch in terms of who you are and the work that you do? Sure, sure. So, um, so my name is Dr. Salaf Lodi, and I am an OBGYN. I've, um, I'm board certified here in the U.S. I've been a gynecologist um, and OB now for, after my training, for 18 years. And um, so currently I'm still practicing OBGYN and uh, delivering babies and all of that stuff. So, yep, still practicing. And um, I'm also a sex coach that I recently started, and uh, I'll be continuing my education in sexual counseling and education through the University of Michigan. My sex coaching uh, is a program through Rutgers University in New Jersey. Lovely. Um, just the basics, what is, um, I've, I, don't, I don't know how to pronounce it properly, obstetrics. <laughs> yeah, can you explain what that is and what the difference is between OB and GYN, please, especially for Absolutely. the now view? Yeah, absolutely. So obstetrics is the branch of medicine and uh, surgery that deals specifically with childbearing. So it's pregnancy, it's delivery, and then the postpartum period and all the diseases and things that can happen during that time frame for a woman. And then gynecology is um, literally means the science or study of women, and it deals with mostly the health and diseases of the reproductive tract. So the uterus, the fallopian tubes, the ovaries, um, the female genital area, that. So that's the difference. <laughs> so one deals with childbirth and the other one is just the gynecology, just the regular stuff like STDs, um, female health, well visits. Are they two separate, and are they two separate like, qualifications to career paths? No, no, actually, so it's combined. So here in the U.S., we do a four-year residency. So, for example, a person will get an undergraduate degree uh, through a university, and then they'll apply to medical school, and then they'll go to medical school for four years, and then we'll apply for a residency, and that residency also is uh, four years. So, and in that training, uh, we learn surgery, we learn the medicine, of both obstetrics and gynecology, and um, so we get to practice both. Right. And that's actually what was so appealing to me about the specialty is that I was very interested in surgery as a medical student, but I wanted something that combined both medicine and surgery. And that's why OB is so fantastic because not only does it focus on women's health, but you also get to perform surgery. So you get to be in the operating room as well. Lovely. You kind of answered my question, but, but the next question I was going to ask is what inspired you to get into or to become an OBGYN? Yeah. So, you know, um, when I was uh, in medical school, I really enjoyed um, hormones. And uh, I actually thought that I wanted to do endocrinology. Um, my undergraduate degree was actually in biochemistry. So I really enjoyed hormones and learning about chemicals and biology and how they came together. And then when I went to medical school, um, I again was fascinated by hormones and I thought I wanted to be an endocrinologist. So I did some rotations in that, but I found that to be rather boring because it just focused on diabetes and um, 
that was not something that I was really interested in. So then as I went through my medical education and did rotations as a third and fourth year, I um, got a chance to do a rotation in OBGYN and fell in love with it. And But to be honest, I actually, the first time I saw a normal delivery, I almost passed out. <laughs> like I was like, oh my God, there's so many fluids and things like that and blood all over the place. So I wasn't that excited. And even a C-section, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. But then, you know, as the time went on and I did more deliveries and my rotations continued, I decided that that's where I wanted to be. And I also wanted to focus on women's health, which to me, I felt like in our communities, at least in the community that I grew up in, I felt like women's health wasn't really um, focused on. And I wanted to learn more about it for myself, but also to empower other women. And I thought it was really important. I'm sorry, um, which community are you referring to? Just speaking for the So it's just the, yeah, so the Muslim community that I grew up in, you know, women um, kind of always took like a you know, were always in the shadows and didn't really speak up as much. And um, I had grown up in a very conservative environment. And so um, I didn't have too many female role models. We had a few, but not too many growing up. Um, you know, my mom was probably my biggest role model because she was, she stayed at home, but she was always there when we needed her and, you know, took care of us and everything at home. But um, I thought it was important for other women and girls to see women empowered and also knowledgeable and to be able to be advocates for other women. So I thought that was really important. Indeed, indeed. And now you're embarking, or you've embarked on a career as a sex educator and sex counselor. Do you mind sharing a little bit in terms of what got you into that? Because I imagine it's quite different to being an OBGYN, or is it similar? Yeah. Yeah, no. So actually, you know, personally, I feel like what better person than um, somebody that is an OBGYN to talk about sex, right? I mean, we our focus, especially in gynecology, is on the female reproductive organs, and we have very intimate knowledge about um, the organs and the systems of uh, the female reproductive tract. So, and especially in terms of like the diseases, but not only that, but some of the conditions such as vaginismus that occurs in women that have issues with um, intimacy. You know, I think that gynecologists are very well versed in dealing with um, sex and sexual counseling and coaching. And of course, urologists, you know, urologists are also very good in terms of dealing with sexual issues and intimacy as it arises with patients and specifically female patients. And I feel like, you know, female patients are very shy and modest and regardless of whatever culture you come from, um, I feel like it's, it's still a very big taboo and it's not really openly discussed and definitely female pleasure is not discussed. And so that's why I truly appreciate your books and all of your books that focus on female pleasure because that's something that is often neglected. So you mentioned vaginismus. Do you mind defining what that is and whether and like is it something that you commonly come, commonly come across with your right. patients? Yeah. So often patients will come in and they'll say that they're you know having a hard time having sexual intercourse um, um, and with in intimacy. And what happens with vaginismus is that uh, the woman tenses up right before intercourse so that intercourse becomes very painful for her to have. 
and uh, some of the treatments for that, you know, mostly um, a lot of it has to do with the emotional state of the woman, right? And whether or not she feels comfortable and whether or not she's experienced abuse in the past, you know, that's a common thing um, that a lot of women don't discuss and needs to be addressed. Um, but the fact that they tense up, you know, if it's mostly something that they experience psychologically, then it's very important for them to see a therapist and to heal first from the emotional trauma that they may have experienced in the past or the abuse that they may have experienced in the past. And that, a lot of times, that is what causes the vaginismus. Um, sometimes it can be anatomical, and, you know, for that, um, what we do if there is, say, like there is a shortened vagina due to pelvic surgery or chemo or radiation or something like that, you know, we can prescribe dilators for women to increase their length and uh, also prescribe some lubrication so that sex is not painful. But vaginismus in itself is the tendency for the vagina to tighten up right before intercourse. And again, um... Can you tell us a little bit about your, because I know you've you got your TikTok page and how you'll find it in terms of giving our sex education, especially to, on a different medium now. Yeah, so what happened is that in November, when I decided this past November, I decided I wanted to do sex education and sex coaching. Um, I thought, what better way to do it than to go on social media? So I opened up an Instagram account and TikTok account. And um, I got lucky with one of my TikToks. It actually went viral. It almost has a million views now. And uh, the title of that one was a Muslim Mom Talking About Sex. So that got a lot of views and a lot of clicks. And I think because a lot of people, you know, think of it as an oxymoron, right? A Muslim woman talking about sex. And it's not something that most people consider or even think that should happen. In fact, a lot of the uh, comments that I get on TikTok um, will be from people that, you know, there's a lot of good comments, but there's some men in there that, uh, or it can also be women, you know, that have a lot to say and uh, believe that, you know, women shouldn't be talking so openly about uh, intimacy or that they should be covered or that it should only be amongst women. And some of them have suggested that, oh, perhaps, you know, I'm, I'm talking about my own experiences, which is not the case, you know. So it's been, it's been quite a journey. I think that it's interesting and I'm learning, um, but it's something that I believe in. And I believe that, you know, education is very important. That's actually one of my core values. And uh, to be able to teach sexual education and to talk about it um, openly, so that women feel more comfortable is very important to me. And so that's why I started the TikTok and the Instagram and because of its far reach. Um, you know, people actually, the, that one particular TikTok, uh, most of the views were in Pakistan <laughs> and then the United States and United Kingdom and even in Saudi Arabia and UAE. So, you know, that seems to resonate with a lot of people. And I know that you've had sex educators on your platform before that were also Muslim. Um, you know, one of the biggest uh, complaints that I seem to get on my TikTok, TikTok is that people are always always asking me about hijab. You know, where is where is my hijab? So that um, you know, people will find out. Will actually you know be surprised to learn that I actually wore hijab. I wore hijab for eight years when I was in. 
undergrad and then in um, in undergrad, in medical school, and then actually my first year of residency. But while in residency, it became difficult to wear the hijab because um, it would go into unclean areas while I was doing deliveries and such. So it became a little bit more difficult uh, to wear the hijab. But now there's, you know, there's definitely lots of ways to wear hijab. And I feel that, you know, it's a, it's a choice that women make and, um, you know, it's something that they have to feel comfortable with. So. So what's the correlation between you wearing a hijab and you talking about sex? Why, why do those questions come up? I don't know. I think that, you know, men tend to feel very uh, uncomfortable. They feel threatened. And um, I think it has to do a lot with, you know, how they feel modesty is and, and how women should be. I mean, I don't know, maybe you could <laughs> help to explain, you know, a little bit what, what the, you know, why people find it to be such an, you know, an oxymoron of why a woman can talk about uh, sex, but it's only good if she wears hijab, and if she doesn't wear hijab, then you know she shouldn't be talking about intimacy. I'm not. I'm not really quite sure that I understand the correlation. Yeah, that's interesting. Even I was just thinking of the title while she was talking. I was writing because obviously you mentioned the title Muslim mom, mom talking about sex. I tried to use the American pronunciation because we spell mom. The year instead of oh, <laughs> uh, but then I was thinking if you were to if it wasn't I was wondering would people be more outraged or less outraged sorry if it was a Muslim gynecologist because obviously you're a professional or is it because it's it's like the mother like Muslim mum was like a combination of the two if it was a Muslim woman talking about sex without a reason I'm just I'm just wondering like why then it's good that it went viral but I'm just wondering what people <laughs> yeah, yeah. reacted so. That's a, that's a good question. You know, I don't know. Although, you know, on my page, it does say I'm an OBGYN. And so, you know, a lot of the supporters that I get, you know, will always say, well, she's a, she's a gynecologist. She's, you know, a, a doctor. What difference does it make? She's trying to educate, you know. So I think that perhaps that could be part of it, too, is that, you know, it said mom and not a gynecologist. But if you just go there and take a look at the handle, it's it says everything. So I don't know. I find it fascinating. It's really interesting, right? What, what, uh, you know, people say and how many opinions everyone has about, you know, how others should live and, <laughs> and what they should talk about and what they shouldn't. So it's interesting. And I'm just wondering what's been the response when you've spoken about, um, I know you recently put up a post about, um, the orgasm gap. You've spoken obviously about women's pleasure other comments and i don't like to concentrate on, on negatives I'm, I'm just wondering in terms of like are, are people more like because if you're thinking about sexual health and again you're professional that's your field some people may be okay we understand that but i'm wondering if, are people more resistant if you're speaking about like the female orgasm or women's pleasure or yeah like, i mean you know Sure. No, I, that still gets a lot of views. Um, you know, actually, what happens with that one is that uh, women actually are commenting on it, not so much about hijab or anything like that, but they're just talking about, you know, they're asking questions like, why is it painful? Or, you know, I never achieve orgasm, or how can I achieve orgasm and things like that. So that that is a big topic that resonates with a lot of women, regardless of what your cultural background is.
you know, and I think you speak a little bit about that, actually quite a lot about that in, in your books and how you emphasize the female pleasure and how important it is in a relationship, in a healthy relationship. And I think that those are all very important aspects. And you mentioned also communication, which is a vital part of, you know, decreasing that orgasm gap which I think that uh, people, you know, tend to not think about and something that is very easy that we could do to help alleviate some of that um, and to get rid of that gap. No, entirely. So I will actually ask a question about the hymen. I just wanted to ask before um, we move on, but do you mind, like, does uh, a smear test reduce or break, sorry, will getting a pap smear break my hymen? Oh, so that's a great question, and the answer is no, no. So the a pap smear uh, is actually, you know, is this screening tool that uh, it's called a Papanicolaou, and the pap smear is actually um, screening. What we do is uh, screening for cervical cancer. And, um, you know, it's recommended here in the United States that women after the age of 21 get a pap smear. And what it's specifically testing for is the human papillomavirus. And that virus is known to cause uh, cervical cancer. And it's also known to cause genital warts. And there are different strains of the virus. And that pap smear will actually screen for the specific strains of the virus that can cause um, abnormal pap smears and may result in cervical cancer. But they have to understand that not all just because a patient has or a woman has uh, HPV, which is human papillomavirus, it does not mean that it will lead to cervical cancer, and that's very important to understand. Um, having the human papillomavirus, especially for a woman in her 20s, a lot of times it goes away on its own, and that's why we decrease the frequency of how often we test for the human papillomavirus and how often we require a woman go for her pap smear. So, um, right, and, and you know, it's important, and while we're on this topic, you know, I should also add that it's very important uh, to get the, the vaccine, the Gardasil vaccine or the vaccine specifically for the human papillomavirus because that vaccine has been proven to show that, um, you know, people, kids, so now the age for getting that vaccine is age nine through up until the age of 25 that uh, people can get that vaccine. And it has been shown to reduce the incidence of HPV. And it's recommended for both uh, boys and girls, because even though you know boys will not get cervical cancer, they may be exposed to genital warts. And so that vaccine will prevent that. And uh, what's important to note is that, you know, sometimes in the Muslim community, we think that our daughters or our sons, you know, will not engage in premarital, you know, intercourse, which we hope that that's the case, but it may not be. And so I recommend to all parents for them to get their children vaccinated against HPV. I think it's so important and it's something that they can do for their children's future. Okay. Again, just for the benefit of people joining, I'm speaking to Dr. Sana Flody, who is a board certified OBGYN based in the United States. She's also a sex educator, a sex counselor. She has a podcast. Um, she's a co-host of a podcast called the Muslim Sex Podcast. And you also can check her on TikTok and she's got a following of over 
21,000 followers. Um, and, a, and a couple of, uh, is, I don't know, they call them, they don't call them reels, isn't it? Because it's TikTok. What do you call the videos in TikTok? Reels? Do we call them reels? Reels is specific to Instagram. But anyway, a couple of our videos have gone viral. So you can go and check, check it out. And um, yeah, check out her podcast, which I, I want to touch on a little bit later. But before we get on to your podcast, actually, I did have a couple more questions. Yeah, what, what are some of the common concerns that you find that women from your experience face in relation to sexual satisfaction? Right. So, you know, a lot of times women will um, complain that they're not able to achieve orgasm, right? That's actually probably the biggest complaint. And some women say that they, um, even in their 30s and 40s, are not able to experience orgasm, right? And some women feel that they'll never achieve it. And so um, they don't really enjoy intercourse. They don't initiate it. It's not something that they desire. Uh, so that's one of the biggest things that I hear. Uh, also, there are women that complain of monotony and painful intercourse, you know, not enough lubrication. Um, there are some women that feel embarrassed to use lubrication, you know, and their partners think that they're just not aroused. But, you know, and I think that's important to understand as well is that lubrication does not mean that a woman is aroused or not aroused. You know, no, if we have lack thereof of lubrication doesn't mean that she's not interested in her spouse, right? So it just, it's, there's nothing to be ashamed of. And, you know, there's lots of lubrication out there that uh, can be used. Some people even use coconut oil for lubrication which is fine. The only thing that you have to understand with coconut oil is that sometimes it can affect the integrity of a condom. And so, um, you know, it will affect, uh, like for example, the, um, the latex condom, it can affect the in integrity of that. And so what you wanna do is be careful when you use the coconut oil. So condoms are good for, you know, protecting against um, a woman becoming pregnant and uh, sexually transmitted diseases. But if you use things that are not uh, safe, lubricants that are not safe to be used with condoms, a woman, a person can still get a sexually transmitted infection because the pores, they, the bacteria can go through the pores that are caused that uh, affect the integrity of that condom. So that's important to know what type of lubricant that you use and what type of condom that you're using. And in fact, the natural condoms, the lambskin condoms, the pores are really big. So it does protect against pregnancy. However, uh, it will not protect very well against sexually transmitted infections. So that's important to know just for contraception sake. Um, some women also, you know, they complain of lack of foreplay or, you know, a lot of women have body image issues as we get older, after we have children, you know, and so that makes them feel less, you know, sexy in the bedroom and so they don't desire intercourse as much. So those are the, some of the common complaints. So with sex coaching, you know, what we try to do is try to go through the beliefs that women have whether, you know, if they're learned uh, beliefs or if those are beliefs that they've held for a long time, uh, go through their cultural baggage that they may have uh, in terms of how they feel about intercourse and try to dismantle them and um, help women to recognize what they're feeling, their emotions, their thoughts, and try to work through them so that they have a more pleasurable experience during intercourse. 
And the um, sex coaching that you provide, is that only face-to-face -face or do you provide some coaching online? Yeah, actually, no, there's, um, with the pandemic and, uh, it's just much easier to do everything online. So currently everything is online. There's no face to face and, and it's important to note that I only, um, work with women. I don't work with men, uh, because I'm a gynecologist. I feel I'm well-versed to speak mostly with women. And that's kind of my interest is, uh, Muslim and, you know, female sexual pleasure. That's really my focus and uh, how women can explore and experience and enjoy their own um, sexual pleasure. And is all the information about your coaching and your work, is that all on your website? I'm just again for people who want to yep. find out more. Yep. yep, absolutely. So it's on drsalaf.com and it's actually, the website is going to go live this weekend. So they can definitely go online and take a look and see if that's something that applies to them and if that's something that they're interested in. You know, I feel like all of us could use a little bit of coaching. Um, and not only do I deal with sex coaching, but also life coaching and, you know, executive coaching as well. But uh, my focus mainly is uh, sex coaching for Muslim women. So you, you said executive coaching? Executive coaching as well, yes, because the program, yeah. so right. So uh, my program that um, I've done or I'm completing is through Rutgers University, and that is actually leadership coaching and organizational performance. So basically those that are looking uh, that have careers and that are looking to get promoted or, you know, issues in the office and things like that and how to deal with them. Um, so that's what the executive coaching is. And it deals also with like institutions and organizations and working with professionals and leaders in those organizations like the C-suite, you know, CEOs and things like that. And then life coaching can be for anyone, right? Um, if they feel stuck in a certain situation or certain beliefs is to help overcome that. And sexual coaching obviously deals specifically with intimacy um, in and out of the bedroom. Great. So different types, yeah, absolutely. Got another question that I wanted to ask. Um, yeah, that someone posed me on my Instagram story. Why does sex hurt? <laughs> Why does sex Assuming hurt? There's a woman that asks. Yes, of course. It's um, So, you know, there can be several reasons why a woman may experience pain during intercourse. You know, some of them we talked about a little bit. Um, pain with intercourse can be divided into three uh, different sections. It can be entry pain, it can be pain with deep penetration, or it can be emotional factors. And all of those three things can cause pain with intercourse. So when we talk about entry pain, we're just specifically talking about lubrication. There is definitely um, after childbirth, Sometimes it's difficult for a woman to have adequate lubrication so that intercourse doesn't hurt. In fact, uh, women that have had um, vaginal deliveries and even those that have had C-sections will notice pain with intercourse because, you know, as most, well, as some people may know that the more you have intercourse, the more elastic your vagina is and the easier it is to have intercourse. So the, and then the less intercourse you have, the tighter the vagina becomes and it can um, become very, uh, it, it shrinks. So basically you either use it or you lose it is kind of what we say. So if you're not having intercourse, 
then that vagina becomes tighter and becomes it becomes more painful to have intercourse. And that's true for a lot of women, especially during pregnancy, because during pregnancy they may feel uncomfortable to have intercourse. They may not like it. They, you know, they may think it's strange. Whatever their beliefs are regarding intercourse during pregnancy, they may not have you know intercourse for a long time. And then, given delivery, and then waiting six weeks after delivery, you know, you could be talking about months going months without having intercourse, right? So then the first time that they have intercourse after a pregnancy and a delivery, it will be very painful. And um, without lubrication, it can be even, you know, difficult. And some women decide they don't even want to have intercourse, you know? So I tell them to take it stepwise, you know, do a lot of foreplay and that will increase the lubrication and to use uh, lubricants, right? Because that's what they're there for to make intercourse easier and more pleasurable the first time they decide to have intercourse after childbirth. So childbirth is one of the main causes of painful intercourse, you know, after having children. Um, also, if you're nursing, um, when you're nursing, you know, you have decreased estrogen, progesterone, those hormones fall off when you're nursing. And so because of that, and estrogen, as we know, is responsible mostly for the lubrication that happens in a woman, um, you know, she may not be lubricated enough while she's nursing. And so because of that, she may have pain with intercourse. So that's another reason that women experience pain with intercourse. Also, uh, hormone, uh, hormonal contraception, for example, hormones that have progesterone only, like uh, you have the IUDs that have progesterone only, you have uh, implants that are progesterone only, you have the Depo-Shot, which is progesterone only. So the, sometimes those oral contraceptives that are progesterone only can cause um, a woman to be, you know, not be lubricated as much during intimacy. And so a woman may need to use, again, lubricants um, when she has intercourse. So those are some of the most important things. Of course, you also have, you know, in the vagina, a woman can have an infection, for example, if she has a sexually transmitted infection or if she has a yeast infection, any type of infection within the vagina can cause irritation and cause painful intercourse. You can have inflammation in the vagina. You can have uh, some type of congenital abnormality. What that means is that uh, maybe the vagina is informed properly or maybe there's um, two vaginas, or, you know, so there's different types of abnormalities that can um, happen or, you know, a woman can be born with. So that's why it's so important to have a working relationship with your gynecologist so that if you're having issues such as uh, that happen with um, entry pain, right, that you go and you see your gynecologist so that they can evaluate and see what's going on with the vagina and see if there's any type of infection or inflammation or whatever else. Maybe there's a tear, maybe there's you know something that happened during childbirth that wasn't repaired properly, whatever. So that's, that's important. So that's a, one of the first things that I would think about is entry type pain. And the second is pain with deep penetration. And that can happen when say, for example, say a woman has had some type of pelvic uh, radiation, say if she's had cervical cancer or some type of cancer 
um, in the female you know, genital tract, and she's needed chemo or radiation, and that can cause scarring in the vagina, right, and in uh, the pelvic area, and that can cause pain with deep penetration. Also, if a woman has something like um, endometriosis, which, again, can cause scarring in um, the pelvis, that can cause pain with deep penetration and, or you can have fibroid, like a fibroid uterus, which can be, you know, and I'm sure your viewers are aware of what a fibroids are, but fibroids are benign growths uh, that can happen within the uterus and they can make the uterus very large. And so if you have a big bulky uterus that is um, right at, you know, let's say at the tip of where, you know, with deep penetration, that can make um, intercourse very uncomfortable. So it's important to be evaluated. If you continuously have pain with intercourse, you know, it's important to know whether it's entry pain, whether it's pain with deep penetration. And of course, you know, we have the psychosocial aspect as well, right? The emotional aspect of it. And that can be due to, you know, stress, anxiety, depression, and also sexual trauma, right? Some women have experienced sexual abuse. Um, and so all of those things are very important to address. And uh, if you continuously have pain, you know, it's important to seek out help, whether it's with a therapist or with your gynecologist. Thank you, thanks for that. And how often would you encourage women to go and see their gynecologist? I'm sorry, say that again? So how often would you recommend women to go and visit their gynecologist? Yes, definitely. So I would recommend them to go at least once a year. Once a year, even if you don't require a pap smear, um, I think it's very important to go and get, you know, a full body exam, get your breast examined. You know, it's important to do a self-breast exam yearly. It's also important to get a pelvic exam at least once a year. And uh, just for a complete check up and to make sure that you know everything looks normal and uh, if you're having any issues you know it's important to discuss it with your gynecologist so at least once a year and you know if you have problems um, then to see them more frequently okay um and someone has a question what causes numbness or loss of sensation what causes what what causes numbness numbness or loss of sensation right so you know numbness has to do with the nerves right so if they're talking about numbness in the vaginal area it could be due to trauma that's typically the number one reason um, trauma from childbirth trauma from perhaps sexual abuse uh, it could also be from chemo or radiation anything that affects the nerves in the pelvic region will cause numbness okay Okay, just for the benefit of people joining, I'm speaking to Dr. Sada Falodi, who is a OBGYN, um, a sex educator, a sex counsellor, and a sex coach. She has a new website which is launching this week, and she is the co-host of the Muslim Sex Podcast. Um, dropping a lot of information today. <laughs> a lot of information. Uh, Gonna have to listen to this again. Um, but again, yeah, like I said, I'm speaking to Dr. Sada Falodi, and now I kind of want to get into your podcast. So the Muslim Sex Podcast, I mean, yeah. I imagine it says, it's about what it clearly says in the name, but do you mind talking to us a little bit about it and what inspired you to set up this podcast? 
Absolutely. So the podcast was, um, so my co-host and I, uh, Zabine Mirza, she and I were talking one day and uh, we were talking just about different um, sexual health matters. And we thought, you know, wouldn't it be a great uh, idea if somebody had a podcast where they discussed um, female issues openly? And, you know, so she and I decided that that was one, that it was a great idea, but two, because I was, because I am a gynecologist, you know, we felt that I felt that I was like, I would be a great person to talk about female issues, female issues of the reproductive tract, of childbirth, of uh, sex and intimacy. And so that's kind of where the inspiration from that came about. And also because Muslim women, um, at least in my growing up and um, my encounters, you know, that's, it's a topic that we don't really discuss. And, um, and it's definitely a need that's there. And it's a niche that uh, is definitely void of a lot of information. And so I felt that it was very important to go out there and to talk about science and evidence-based medicine and um, help to relay information to women that may be too shy to go and approach others and to even discuss it amongst their own physicians, right? And so that's something actually that we notice even in the exam room. When women come to see the gynecologist, that's usually not their first question that they ask. You know, they'll come in, they'll come in for their annual exam, and they'll talk about, you know, like what's going on with their periods and things like that. But sex is not something that women openly discuss. And it's only if a gynecologist, you know, specifically asks about their sex life, will they divulge that information? So it's important. And even in that private, um, you know, atmosphere, private um, encounter with their own physician, you know, women are not um, that forthright to discuss those topics. So that's why it was important for us to discuss it. So that's why we started. And the things that we talk about, you know, the first, uh, the first episode discussed anatomy of the, the female anatomy. The second uh, episode was about sex and intimacy. And then we went from there. We talked about fertility and fertility. We spoke about sexually transmitted infections. We sp uh, spoke about contraception. Um, and currently, this week's episode is talking about childbirth and C-sections and you know epidurals and things like that. Uh, we also discuss um, pregnancy and what happens you know in the first, second, third trimester and postpartum. So topics such as those. And that's why it was important for me to be able to discuss that and share that with listeners and people that were interested and those that, you know, may not be able to discuss it, but wish to, you know, listen to it privately on their own. And where can people listen to find that podcast? Yeah, so you can find that podcast. Um, I actually have a YouTube channel, but you can also find it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So, um, you know, anywhere where people get their podcasts, they can find it and uh, listen to it if they want. And we also post like little trailers and snippets on TikTok and Instagram so people can kind of get a feel for what the topic is about and uh, take a listen. Lovely. And where do you see the podcast like five years from now? The podcast, um, the podcast, I feel like it's going to continue. You know, I feel like there's so many topics that we haven't even touched. And um, I feel like there's, there's just so many things that come up, research, you know, talking to other uh, podcasters. There's so many 
women with so much knowledge that I feel like it's very important to be able to relay that information and knowledge to others and uh, women that are seeking it. So I, I think it'll continue, you know, inshallah. <laughs> and uh, do you plan to attract male, uh, I mean, are you plan to attract male audiences to your podcast? Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, definitely if, you know, for example, if you wanted to come on, we'd be, I'd be more than happy <laughs> to have definitely you come on and speak about all the books that you talk about. And there's so much information there. And, um, you know, I think it's so important to realize what Islam says about a woman's rights to um, sexual satisfaction and what her rights are uh, that she has over her husband. And that's something that, you know, we don't focus on. And even in society, even in American society, I think Western culture, you know, female pleasure and her uh, pleasure is definitely not a priority. It's starting to become one now. But, you know, even if you think about it, um, for sexual dysfunction, you know, the, what, are, what were the, some of the first medications that we had, right? It was for erectile dysfunction. We had Viagra, we had Cialis, right? It, women's pleasure uh, was never really at the forefront. And when you think about why that is, it's because most of the research that is done on medications is done on uh, white men. And so, you know, women's pleasure, women's uh, issues are not something that are often, you know, funded. And so that's why it's important to be able to discuss these issues and bring them to the forefront and bring that research and uh, scientific knowledge that we're gaining about female um, sexual pleasure and uh, increase funding to it so that we can have more information. Um, I'm part of the training of a gynecologist. Does it include like women's sexual satisfaction and female pleasure? Is that something that's part of the training? Yeah, so actually I'm glad you asked because no, not at all. <laughs> you know, we right, spent okay. we spent four years learning about, and there's so much information, right, about childbirth and uh, what happens in pregnancy and all of those things. And then we spend a lot of time on ultrasound. We spend time on reproductive endocrinology and infertility. We spend time on urogynecology. We spend time on high-risk medicine um, and high-risk pregnancies. But, you know, and minimally invasive disease, uh, minimally invasive surgery, specifically laparoscopy and robotics and all this stuff, right? Because OBGYN is a combination of both obstetrics and gynecology. But definitely, uh, female sexuality is not at all a focus. None. We receive no, at least definitely in my training, there was no training, uh, no education on it at all. So it's something that you have to seek out yourself if you're interested in it, you know? And so that's why it's, I'm sure you're probably surprised <laughs> from that because there's there's no training on it. Yeah, I, I heard that, but I wanted to hear that from a gynecologist yeah. myself because I heard that from a urologist and she also mentioned that, yeah, um, like female sexual pleasure is rarely discussed in, in, in her training. And she also mentioned the gynecologist as well. And she even mentioned like, the clitoris as well is not really mentioned in terms of it being that not for pleasure. And I'm trying to understand why do you think that is? I think I think the reason why that is is the lack of research, right? The lack of research, the lack of the scientific papers on it. Uh, I just think that it's, you know, women's pleasure is just was never a priority. 
you know, even, and I think, um, you know, you had asked me um, just prior to this about a question about whether or not in medical school, you know, are we, are we taught anything in medical school regarding female pleasure? And actually we're not. The only thing we learn is the study that was done by Masters and Johnson, which I'm sure you are very familiar with, right? That 1966 research that talks about the four-stage linear model of sexual response. And all they talk about is excitement, plateau, orgasm, and resolution, right? And again, that study is biased and it's based on uh, the male sexual response. It doesn't take into account women at all. Even though they had 10,000 respondents for that study, it was not, uh, women were not included in that study. So, you know, I just think that there's such um, a lack of knowledge on this topic. And so, you know, we're not taught it at all. And what we're taught is, um, not even that relevant anymore. It doesn't even pertain to women's sexual pleasure, right? So that's right. So that's that's what we learned. And you know, a lot of times um, in that theory, it assumes that sexual uh, intercourse is spontaneous, right? That it's automatic, it's unprompted, and you know that doesn't really always fit with women's experience. Women, a lot of times, need to be prompted. And, you know, oftentimes for women, arousal comes before desire. And so it's what we learn doesn't even apply to the female experience. And, and is it, are things starting to change with, in, in your field, like what kind of colleagues are they, unless they're like yourself, actively seeking out this information and research themselves, but I'm talking about with the big wigs, shall we say, yeah, are they not yeah. trying to so, enlighten what's going yeah, on? Yeah, right, absolutely. So definitely, you know, it's starting to change. There is more research that's occurring. There's um, the American Academy of Sexual Education and Training, I'm trying to remember, but the acronym is AASECT. There's also uh, an organization called ISHWISH, which is also the Institute for the Study of Sexual Wellness. Um, so there are now groups and institutions, uh, large institutions that are forming to discuss and to study female pleasure and making that a priority. But it was not something that uh, was ever focused on before in you know, the American College of OBGYNs, but now it is. And now you know, they're training gynecologists to, to ask women about their sexual preferences and about their sexuality and also about, you know, pleasure and orgasm. And now this is a, a very recent phenomenon. But before this, I would say before, I don't know, maybe say the, like the last five years, you know, before that, it wasn't something that we really focused on. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's astonishing. Um, are you, are, are there any plans to do any like, um, webinars or courses this is actually my question it's not someone yeah. else <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean i think that you know as i continue to grow and uh, see more clients and patients i'm going to see what their needs are and but definitely in the future there is um you know i'm looking at doing webinars and doing courses and if you know people decide they don't want to do like a one-on-one -on -one coaching or like a group coaching you know they may benefit from a webinar on the website or you know a small little course study that they could do on their own during their own time and that's definitely in the works um for future plans for me absolutely yeah i definitely think there's especially from qualified and professionals like yourself there's definitely a need 
not only within obviously the Muslim community, but the wider community at large. Um, someone asked me a question about, I think you kind of covered it, but I'll ask anyway. Um, what is a hymen and does the hymen break the first time a woman has sex? Okay. So the hymen is a piece of tissue that is um, right at the opening of the vagina. And um, yes, it can break. It doesn't have to always break right at the time of first intercourse. Some people, some women, you know, um, it can break even prior to that. Um, but yes, I mean, for most women, it does break at the first time that they have intercourse. And some women can bleed from that. And other women don't. So, you know, it just depends. I don't think that there's a, a blanket statement that you can say that all women will bleed the first time that they have intercourse, right? And I think that's also a fallacy that, you know, some men may think that, say that their spouse or whoever was promiscuous or had intercourse prior because they didn't bleed when they had intercourse, you know, and I don't think that that's um, a proper way to think about, you know, whether or not she... Just because she didn't bleed doesn't mean she wasn't a virgin prior to intercourse, right? So yes, so the hymen is a piece of tissue that's right at the opening of the vagina. Okay, we've got a few more minutes. I want to kind of focus on men. What advice would you give to men who want to help, you know, women understand pleasure and reach sexual satisfaction? Right. So. You know, I think I think one of the most important things I think is that communication, right? I think that uh, connecting with a woman at the intellectual level, I think, is very important, right? So, you know, respond to her with kindness, sweet words. You know, I think that massages are always good. <laughs> um, I think that it's important um, for a man to. Um, you know, understand what she wants, right? And I think it's important to have open communication, you know, see what a woman likes. Um, and then, of course, you know, reciprocity, right? Then for the woman to ask a man what he likes. Um, I think that's really important. I think to, um, you know, what most women desire, I think, is closeness and intimacy, emotional closeness, right? And I think that when women don't find that, then they become dissatisfied, um, you know, not only in the bedroom, but outside of that. So I think establishing and promoting a form of emotional uh, closeness with a woman, I think is very important. Um, even before, you know, going to the bedroom, I think it's important to talk and have that open communication and know the other person's needs and wants and see what they like and what they don't like what their preferences are very well said very well said and um in terms of like the female anatomy there's a number of questions that people ask but especially in relation to men what do men need to know about the female anatomy <laughs> i think i think what men need to know and understand are the different erogenous zones that a woman has. And I think that your books uh, go into that quite a bit. And I think that your books are actually a very good manual for that. Um, but I think those, that's very important, right? Uh, it may not just be um, 
say like the breasts, right? It could be, you know, the clitoris, it could be um, the lower back, it could be different things that a woman likes and what she enjoys and what she, you know, what she finds to be stimulating. I think those are important things to know. I think it's important for the woman, for the man to understand uh, the whole purpose of what the, the clitoris is, right? And um, it's the only organ in either of the bodies, right? Either the male or the female that is solely for um, sexual pleasure. And I think that that's important to understand, right? There's, uh, they say that there's more than 8,000 nerves, nerve endings um, in the clitoris. I think it's important to understand, you know, I think that somebody had asked a question about uh, a vaginal orgasm, right? And trying to figure out how to attain that. And I think the important thing to know about that is where where do you find what we call the G spot, right? So the G spot is found on the upper surface of the vagina, and some people actually think that that's where the roots of the clitoris crisscross. And as you mentioned, you know, you call I think uh, you call the clitoris the the K spot. Is that what you call it? that <laughs> case spot right because um you think you know you believe it looks like a k and i and i agree i think it you know i think it looks like a wishbone and wishbone. so right and so you know the the fibers extend over into the labia and i think it's very important for men to understand the female anatomy and to see what you know what uh, your spouse likes enjoys and what stimulates them what arouses them um to find uh fulfillment in the bedroom. And I think that those, you know, those things are very important. So what I was mentioning about the G spot is anything that causes stimulation or pressure in that area, which is the upper portion of the vagina, uh, can elicit a vaginal orgasm. And, you know, that's really important too, if that's what somebody is seeking, right? And there's different types of orgasms. And again, you know, I, I reference your book because I feel like your book is very good. And it talks about the different types of orgasms that are available to to women and men just have to do the research and do the learning and women can be good teachers and educators themselves, right? They can teach uh, their husbands or their partners, whatever, um, what excites them, what arouses them, what causes them to have orgasms. And what's also important, I just want to say is that, you know, women are able to have multiple orgasms in the bedroom, right? It's not just one. Uh, they can have multiple. So that's important to understand as well. Some women report having as many as 20 orgasms in one session, which is amazing. But yeah, some women can. And so it's important for a man to understand the anatomy of a woman and uh, see how he could please her. Beautifully said. So the last question that just quickly popped up, I know we've got like five minutes or three minutes to go. Um, is it normal for your clitoris to have a loss of sensitivity or take a long time until you can until you can orgasm? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes, I did. So absolutely. So, you know, it, it, you know, I think that there's no, there's no time frame, right? Like it's, it's, it's about constant stimulation and pressure and touch. It's not, there's no fixed time, right? There's no like, you know, like, oh, you have, this has to happen within five seconds, right? So however long it takes a woman to orgasm or however long it takes for her to become aroused or stimulated. And like we just spoke about, right? For a woman, arousal comes before desire. And so, 
whatever and however long it takes a woman, that's, that's fine. And it's, you know, it's specific to her body and what is right for her and what's stimulating for her. And I don't think that there really is a time frame. So it's okay, however long it takes, you know, and that's what your partner or spouse has to be accepting of and uh, respective of, right? They need to respect that it takes you perhaps longer than what you think in your head it should take, right? There's no sex. There's no, there's no rules. There's no, you know, like this is the way it should be. And I think that's part of where coaching comes in because we have our own set beliefs are, um, you know, whatever we're taught or whatever we see, that's what we think should happen. And those, what are, that's what our beliefs are, right? Our thoughts become our beliefs, which then become our actions. And once we change our thoughts, then we'll change our actions. And I think that that will lead to greater pleasure, not only in bed, but also in our lives. And I think that's what's important to know. Beautifully said, beautifully said. Yeah. Okay, um, thank you, Jazakallah Khairan, for okay. sharing your words of wisdom, your knowledge. Before we wrap up, do you mind plugging, obviously, where people can find you, your podcasts, and anything else you've got going that you want to kind of talk Yeah, absolutely. So I have, um, you can find me and you can DM me. So one request I have is that the DMs that come on my Instagram, please only women. I, I get DMs from men and uh, I appreciate it, but I, uh, I specifically, uh, I'm, you know, um, I'm specifically, coaching women. So that's what I appreciate. And also, um, you can find me on TikTok, and also you can go on drsalaf.com and then it's the Muslim sex podcast, which of course you can find on Spotify or Apple podcasts and, or the YouTube channel. So thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. And, uh, I can't wait to talk again. So thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm going to make sure I save this and obviously then I'll, I'll be posted. But thank you for speaking, Ken yeah. Black. Yeah. Thank you everyone for joining. Okay. Good evening. Yeah. Bye. Bye.